If you're listening to this episode when it comes out, it is Rosh Chodesh Av, the day when the sages of the Talmud, in Tractate Tanit, say that we are to diminish our joy in commemoration of the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem and myriad other tragedies in Jewish history, which we observe on Tisha B'Av. Jewish time is sometimes described as a helix. We revisit foundational events in a cyclical pattern while also moving forward. In an essay on the customs of the three weeks preceding Tisha B'Av, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, one of the great leaders of 20th century modern orthodoxy, writes about what he calls a unitive time consciousness. He contends that through the mitzvot that shape the experiential nature of Jewish holidays, past and future events are lived in the present. The practices of the three weeks before Tisha B'Av are similar to those of a mourner following the passing of a close relative. Immediately after a relative's death, the mourner is exempt from performing all positive commandments on account of the shock. After the burial, the mourner passes the acute stage of grief by sitting shiva, and certain restrictions are maintained during shloshim, the remainder of the 30 days following the death, such as refraining from getting a haircut, wearing new clothes, hearing live music, or taking part in celebrations. These restrictions are also taken on from the beginning of the three weeks. However, Unlike the process of mourning a loved one's death, which takes one from acting in ways that reflect an intense state of grief and gradually returning the mourner to regular routines, the three weeks sees a gradual buildup of mourning practices until they reach the intensity of fasting on Tisha B'Av and customs that recall Shiva, such as sitting on the floor or a low stool and refraining from laying tefillin for Shacharit, the morning prayer services. Interestingly, though, the return to normalcy begins during Tisha B'Av. This is reflected by the unusual practice of donning talis and tefillin during afternoon prayers, as well as the curious belief that some hold that the Messiah will be born on the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. In his recent book, The Principles of Judaism, one of the things that philosopher Rabbi Dr. Samuel Labens attempts is to lay out a theory of redemption grounded in the perspective of analytic philosophy. In this framework, ultimate redemption is one that eliminates pain and trauma, even if it has passed. Labens asks us to imagine, Lahabdil, God as director and history as film. At the end of history, God can excise any painful, undesirable scenes and give us the opportunity to atone by replacing them with better ones. However, this is only possible if, by the end of history, all time exists simultaneously and is held inside of a larger plane, which he calls hypertime. I think that Laban's idea of hypertime is compatible with earlier Jewish thought, like Franz Rosenzweig's idea that Shabbat and holidays allow a person to tap into eternity or to experience Rav Soloveitchik's unitive consciousness of time. If those comparisons don't work for you, maybe try thinking of hypertime as similar to the Q continuum. I think that the three weeks present us with an experience of time that is far more complex than, but leads us toward, simple unity. With the increasing intensity of mourning practices that bring us from seeming normalcy to the experience of the destruction of the temple, it is as if we retrace our steps, working our way from the end of mourning to the moment of loss. Let me run with the movie metaphor and imagine that tragedy was filmed on actual film which you could erase by rewinding to see all of the rubble come back together and become the reconstructed, or undestroyed, temple. 
in a way, the possibility of Mashiach being born on the afternoon of each Tisha B'Av lets us travel backward through ancient history until we reach the end of time, which is also the furthest possible point in the future. After every Torah service, we recite the phrase, or make new our days like those of old. With these words, sourced very appropriately from the Book of Lamentations, traditionally chanted on Tishabav, we ask for an ultimate future that is the primordial past. I mean to propose the radical idea that the rituals of the Jewish calendar are a time travel technology. Through them, we enter the Q continuum-like plane that is eternity, through which we can experience the past and the future. Though the focus of Tisha B'Av is on past events of tragedy and grief, I believe that putting ourselves through this experience year after year is like rehearsing redemption. We live it on a small scale, and each time, God willing, we get closer to realizing Star Trek's optimistic vision of the future and Judaism's messianic ideal. I hope that all of you who are fasting this year have a meaningful one. May we all be comforted among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. That was the voice of Maxine Lee Uischek. Maxine is a Toronto-based student. She's also a textile artist and a classically trained ballet dancer. You can learn more about her at expressionistthreads.wordpress.com. Yesher koach, Maxine. Up next, we have my interview with David Svi Kalman on Jewish timekeeping technologies. But first, since our last episode, Picard Season 2's trailer dropped, I think it ties thematically into some of the issues that came up both in Maxine's piece and in my conversation with David Svi. So we're going to play it now, but uh, skip ahead by a minute if you want to avoid some spoilers in the trailer. Paris? Paris? Paris! What the hell is happening here? Excellent question, Jean-Luc. Oh dear, you're a bit older than I imagined. Mon capitaine, how I've missed you. Q. Welcome, my friend, to the very end of the road not taken. Time has been broken. We can save the future, and I will get us home together. David Svi Kalman is a researcher, publisher, author, journalist, and artist. David Svi is the Scholar-in-Residence and Director of New Media at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He also runs Printicraft, a tiny, excellent Jewish printing house based in Philadelphia, which, among other titles, published uh, The Rainbow Thread by Noam Siena and The Illustrated Pirkei Avot, translated and illustrated by Jessica Tamar-Dutch, two books that we've spoken about a few times on this show. And I should say, probably most of our listeners know David Svi as the moderator of Star Trek Jew Posting. David Svi, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, we ask everyone this because uh, we've got a full range from the complete newbies to uh, <laughs> to to a very different end of that spectrum. What's your what's your Star Trek comfort level, and how did you first come to Star Trek? 
I first came to Star Trek on a stack of VHS tapes that I watched consistently over and over again growing up. Um, I fell in love in particular with Undiscovered Country, which is the first movie that I learned to recite by heart. Um, <laughs> it's it's always been part of my life. I can't remember a time that it wasn't part of my life. It was part of my life certainly long before I knew anything about Star Wars. Um, and I think it's going to it has lasting power in ways that for me, at least Star Wars does not have. So you wrote your PhD dissertation on Jewish timekeeping technologies. So at risk of asking you to summarize your entire thesis, uh, let me do exactly that. So what is a timekeeping technology and what are Jewish timekeeping technologies? So Jews themselves don't have their own special timekeeping technologies almost at all. Timekeeping is something that Jews take advantage of when you know they adopt hours, they adopt seconds. There's really only one special Jewish unit of time, that is the halakim, of which there are 1,080 in an hour, for no reason other than the fact that 1,080 is divisible by many, many different numbers. But mostly Jews took advantage of whatever timekeeping technology and whatever timekeeping uh, terminology was available um, around them. And so my dissertation is really about the ways from the Bible to the 20th century that Jewish law and Jewish culture responded to consistent development in timekeeping technology and in ways of thinking about what it means to divide the day into 24 hours or what it means to divide the hour into 60 minutes. The one that I'm familiar with is like the halachic hour of the, I'm sure you know it better than me, the daylight divided into 12 and that becomes a daytime hour. Is that the kind of thing you're getting at? It is. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think one of the surprising things that came out of my dissertation, which I did not expect, was um, an argument that the way that that concept, what you're talking about, the Sha'ot's Maniot, uh, seasonal hours, is talked about uh, within Jewish texts and also is taught today to the many, many people who begin studying Mishnah or studying Talmud with the first Mishnah of Brachot, which talks explicitly, it seems, about that idea, is that actually, I argue, the rabbis had very little understanding of how hours worked, mm -hmm. that they didn't really know or did not really care about the difference between seasonal hours and uh, equinoctial hours, equinoctial hours meaning the hours are the same duration no matter what time of the year it is. Um, and the reason that they didn't know or didn't care is that they were living um, in a culture in which timekeeping technology was available, but still not very widely used. So sundials, sundials are around, but it's not like everyone has a sundial with them. And even the uh, sundials that are around, and there's lots of sundials in synagogues, we have evidence that th they may just be there for ornamental purposes. They're there because they make you look smart. So it's partially because of that. And it's also because it just so happens that Jews are writing about Jewish law very close to the equator. Um, and because they're living so close to the equator, it's really okay to kind of fudge things a little bit and say like, well, okay, so an hour changes a little bit depending on what time of the year it is, but we don't really need to think about are there actually two competing notions of hour and we need to specify which one we're using whenever we talk about Jewish law. They don't actually get to that point. And it's really only in the medieval period that um, you have Jews who are imbibing astronomy from Islamic sources who start saying, oh, actually, there are these two types of hour. Let's see if we can read these back into Jewish law. And so you, then you have Rambam Maimonides saying, for example, you know, whenever the Mishnah says it talks about hours, it's talking about seasonal hours. But really, Rambam only knows that because of his mathematical and astronomical knowledge. The mm. rabbis themselves would have been like, I, what are you talking about? Like, hours are hours. What is there to say? Right. Just that, that living in, I don't know, third century 
Iraq or Palestine, you wouldn't run into like the six hour swing that we see in the northeast of North America. Right. And that's part of it. Actually, this is something I think about um, in terms of in terms of Star Trek as well, because I know that there's lots of discussions. It's like it's kind of fashionable to talk about what would it be like to do Shabbat in space? What would it be like to, you know, where it's feeling in space? What would it be like to, you know, which direction do you pray when you're, you know, saying the Amidah on Mars, whatever it happens to be. And I think what people don't understand is that forget about outer space. There's a way in which Jewish law wasn't even designed to cover the entire globe mm -hmm. um, that the rabbis in the Talmud are not actually considering very carefully what it would mean to observe Jewish law, say, as far north as London. And there's a good reason for that, because, you know, if you're living in Iraq, if you're living in uh, Palestine, you may necessarily know anybody who lives in London. You may know that it's possible to live in London at all. Um, there is there are Islamic geographers, um, like including Al-Khwarizmi, who after whom um, the algorithm is named, who literally do not think it's possible to survive as far north as London. They divide the world up into kind of, you know, different climes where depending on which latitude you are, it's more or less comfortable to live. It's best to live kind of like in a middle space that's like not too far north and not too close to the equator. But at a certain point, when you get too far north, you can't live there at all. So like they're really not actually they're like to them living in London is like living in outer space. And so like because of that, there's a way in which we have already had to make the kinds of adaptations to Jewish law to extend to extend Jewish law to the entire globe. And it's funny to think about, you know, the the laws about living in outer space is kind of an extension of that. Because like, you know, when Tosvot are trying to think about how to read the Gemara and trying to understand what it means to say hours in the Talmudic context, they're like, wait a minute, but like I live in northern France and my hours are really different depending on what time of the year it is. So it's very easy to forget how localized Jewish law can be. Star Trek has a pretty unusual approach to timekeeping. Something I didn't realize when I was younger and was only like pointed out to me pretty recently was that classic Trek, uh, you can't actually pinpoint when it takes place in and of itself. Like all of the references to when the original series or the original movies take place are, are only inferred from later Trek saying, uh, it's this year right now and... Uh, this was 89 years ago or things like that. And instead, I think a creative decision to say, we're going to do away with all of that and use star dates, which are this ambiguously future sounding thing. And yet, despite all of that intention to create the ambiguity and to, to not let the viewer pinpoint exactly where it is, we, the collective Star Trek fans, have gone and done the exact opposite of that and, and you know, systematized chronologies and fan communities of you know this takes place here and this then or endless debates of production order versus uh, viewing order so what do you make of star dates and and what do you make of the fact that like large communities of fans seek to work against the grain of what that star date was trying to do yeah that's really interesting i'll say two things about it one about the star dates and one about the fan community in terms of the star dates themselves one thing that i've been wondering recently, and I'm wondering if someone has an answer to this, is Star Trek relatively early on starts to become self-referential. It's interested in its own past. Certainly there's a point um, in the next generation when they decided it was okay to start uh, being nostalgic about the original series in the first few mm -hmm. seasons of Next Generation. They were like, we're not going to have cameos. Like, okay, they have bones in the pilot, whatever. They're pretty careful about it. Yeah, because they wanted to say, like, we are making a break. This is its own show. It doesn't rely on Kirk or Spock or anybody else. And then, like, eventually they're like, okay, fine. We'll bring on Scotty for relics. 
but they mostly try to stay pretty far away from that. So in some ways, like the being random about star dates goes together with that earlier notion of Star Trek in which mm -hmm. you don't actually have to care about chronology because you're just existing within the universe of that one episode and nothing else matters around it. But the development of Stardates starts to say, okay, we actually are living in this universe that needs to be at least somewhat self-consistent. And we need to start thinking about, you know, how things connect to each other. And and by having Stardates, you also have the opportunity to kind of change the universe in permanent ways and develop new scenarios instead of just kind of starting with the same basic premise and seeing where things right. go. So that, you know, that's in terms of like what Stardates themselves do. What the fan community does is so interesting because, I mean, and I know that you've talked about this as well. You've talked about, you know, the notion of Star Trek as canon. That to, to me, Star Trek is not just canon. It's a very particular kind of canon. And here I like to think about the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, where I think about Star Wars as basically Bible canon and Star Trek as Talmud canon. And, and the difference is that I imagine, and, and you know, bear with me, maybe you won't buy this, is that there is a way in which... Star Wars is, first of all, kind of a monoculture. It's more, it's 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 a bigger deal as a canon. It's more popular. Um, it has fewer elements, at least in the main, you know, series of nine films. And that canon is then supplemented by all kinds of like reams and reams and reams of material around it. But there's a kind of core set that everyone knows or everyone is mm -hmm. aware of. Star Trek, on the other hand, has no center. It's not like you have to start yeah. in one place. There's all kinds of discussions about like where you're supposed to start in Star Trek. But like you can start wherever you want. In the same way that for Talmud, there's endless debates about like, you know, what's the right place to start Talmud? Because Talmud has no real beginning and no real ending. It just kind of keeps going. And like Talmud, it, you know, is ostensibly divided up into these different sections. But those sections can be very different in terms of style, right? Like the difference between reading Mesechet Harayot, which is notoriously very difficult to read, or reading the beginning of Brachot, which is relatively easy, has a lot of interesting, you know, stories, not so much, you know, not so many logical puzzles. Those are very different experiences. So in the same way, like I think about those, uh, about tractates in the way that I think about Star Trek series, in the way that they are kind of doing very different things, even under the, the label Star Trek. And also in the sense that there is kind of these layers in the way that the Talmud has layers where they kind of, you know, overlap one another. And I think, but the most important part of this is that part of being a Star Trek fan is accepting mediocrity sometimes <laughs> like it's okay and in fact encouraged to say like this episode is terrible and i don't yeah. want to watch that one and like part of what it means to be a star trek fan is to have a handle on like what are the great episodes what are the okay episodes what are the terrible episodes in the way that i'm sorry to say this like for talmud as well people have an internal sense of like i'm going to study talmud i know that there's going to be sections which i find unbearable in that they don't seem to have any point for me i'm just going to kind of get through them and there's other sections which are like this is so amazing this is so important and your notion of talmud ends up being based on those exemplary sections rather than the canon as a whole and it doesn't really matter like you don't have to kind of connect between the two so no like star dates to me are you know they serve the same function as say like toast vote or like a kind of early commentator that's interested in developing a theory of of consistency around a canon that doesn't necessarily exist within a canon itself but because they love it so much they're trying to develop that consistency it, it occurs to me that like star trek like talmud is um more in conversation with itself than than other genres of fandom like you know you you look at things like deep space nine which almost exist in whole as a as a critique of the previous iteration of Star Trek in terms of like, you know, taking a premise and taking it to its extreme and, and trying to pick apart, you know, the underlying assumptions of it. And I, I see that connection you're drawing of, of, of being more of a Talmudic approach than a biblical one. So time travel has been a function of Star Trek since 
way back at the beginning, I, I think um, right in early season one, is there time travel in classic Jewish texts? And and what are what are the rules, if there are rules to it? So there's a writer named James Glick who has written about the history of time travel. And one of the things that he talks about is that you do have some precedent to the concept of time travel before, say, the beginning of the 19th, I'm sorry, before the late 19th century. But their understanding of what it means to move through time are very different from what comes about basically after H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which is like, yeah. as he understands it, the beginning of uh, time travel's modern permutation. Because what happens in H.G. Wells is there's this, like, a, a well-stated and explicit understanding that time is just another dimension. You can travel back and forth across time in the way that you can travel back and forth across a room. So that notion of time as being just another dimension really does not exist uh, within within Jewish texts, even though Jewish texts do have a sense that you can, for example, you know, sleep for 70 years and wake up and you're in a different time period. I would argue that that is doing something that's quite different from, uh, you know, modern time travel. In part because there's a sense that that's a one-way ticket. In part because there isn't a sense that this is something achieved through some miraculous machine. Hmm. It is simply kind of a window into another time. But I don't think there is any kind of critical thought around that. So, and you do have that sense of kind of sleeping through time appearing in multiple sources, right? You have both yeah. the story of Choni Hamagel. There's a version that appears in the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Rishalmi, which have very different endings: one sad, one happy, around um, him sleeping and and kind of waking up in a different time. You also have the sleepers of Ephesus. Uh, which is a Christian narrative, which also involves people kind of going to sleep for a long time and then waking up. Uh, but again, like it's sleep that's kind of motivating them through the story. Um, what's interesting in both stories actually is that while they both notice differences between the world before and the world after, if you were writing that story today, the big differences would be like society is different. You know, there are flying cars, like all kinds of technological aspects uh, or societal aspects that are changing. And neither of those stories thinks that anything that radical is going to happen. There's like an interesting assumption of persistence that, mm. okay, the world will be different in that, like, all your friends are dead. Or the world will be different in that, like, you know, the tree that was once a sapling is now fully grown. But there isn't a sense of the, the, the same kind of swift change that we experience today. It's just kind of, you know, different people are alive than there are today but basically the world stays the same and that and that actually strikes me as being the most interesting part of both of those stories what is the sad ending to honey the circle maker i i think i only know the bubbly version of it the sad ending is that nobody knows who he is anymore like he's just he's just this guy who's 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 out of in his entire context he's not celebrated as he is in the other version so i'm, I'm gonna shift from uh from time to space here because you posted something that has stuck with me i think you stuck it in star trek Two posting a year or two ago and it was something along the lines of uh, my friends asked me why i would bother studying the layout of an imaginary place and you had a photo of uh tractate aerovim and the enterprise d blueprints so talk to me about uh how you made that connection and and the relationship in both of these to imaginary spaces so I came to the the Star Trek Enterprise Blueprint book very recently. I know it's been around forever, but there was something just so incredible about it. I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. There's something crazy about the idea of just developing a kind of open source manual for freelance writers to develop episodes on your ship. Like that's um, there's something very welcoming and very friendly about that, and I continue to be astounded by the model that 
the next generation pursuit of allowing people to just <laughs> send in scripts. So that I think like was immediately what attracted me to it. But I'm interested in Arrow itself in part because of a really important shift that takes place in the idea of Arrow in the middle of the 19th century, where Arrow moves from basically being about surrounding a community to being this kind of voodoo-esque, you know, really difficult to understand, very esoteric part of law, which is not expected to have any real connection to reality or any real connection to community. And as I said, just about following the rules as they are written. And that's basically it. And that transformation takes place basically because of the invention of the telegraph. Hmm. Um, because what happens beforehand is you have, you know, you have areas that are built around a town that's, you know, you can, you can demarcate its boundaries because it's literally far away from other things or because there's a river around it or because there is a fortification around it. But once you have telegraph wires, it just so happens that this totally unconnected piece of technology is now sending these boundaries crisscrossing through your community, not organized according to who lives where, but just according to efficiency, you know, what's the sort of distance between station A and station B. And then that obviously happens to an even greater extent when you have above ground uh, electrical wires. And so what happens as a result of that is that it now becomes possible to basically build an arrow wherever you want uh, with relatively little difficulty, especially North America, whereas Jews in Europe are kind of like pretty timid about putting, you know, their random infrastructure on city infrastructure for like anti-Semitism reasons in North America, actually in Toronto uh, specifically. It's like one of the most interesting, you know, whatever, not one of the most interesting, but like an interesting, you know, Jewish fact about Toronto is that it's one of the first places in the world where you have an Eruv built by having a Jewish community physically augment the municipal infrastructure. Uh, Rabbi Graubert, I believe, um, this is like in either uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, mm. developed this as a concept and then it was, you know, copied to St. Louis and to New York City, like all kinds of other places. But there's a kind of conceptual shift that takes place there where you have to acknowledge the fact that your Erev might be easy to build, but also isn't going to correspond to your community except to the degree that you want it to because you happen to build it there. Mm -hmm. The Erev here in Toronto feels so disconnected from even like the physical layout of it doesn't necessarily match with where Jews live because it uses the main east-west highway in the city as a big chunk of it. And it seems disconnected from like the idea of you are going to have a, a fence around the courtyard where you and your neighbors all like to barbecue together. Yeah. David Speed, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat with you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, you can go to my website, uh, davidzvi.com. That's David ZV. I'm sorry. That's davidzvi.com. <laughs> I've been living in the US way too long. I made this shift and I can't switch back. Um, that's the main place you can find my work. And do you want to tell us a bit about the new media work at the Shalom Hartman Institute? Yeah. So um, I have a couple of hats there. Part of what I do is reading and writing and research around uh, Judaism and technology and also uh, around Judaism and the environment, Judaism and the natural world. Um, and the other part of it is developing Jewish podcasting and Jewish uh, video content. So um, I produce a couple of podcasts there, Identity Crisis, which is a weekly podcast about news and ideas. And then For Heaven's Sake, which is another podcast also about news and ideas, uh, but mostly from an Israeli perspective. So you can take a listen to both of those. David Speed, thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Thanks. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Maxine Lee Uischuk and David Svi Kalman. Your Hebrew School homework is the Star Trek Corps of Engineers novella Creative Couplings Part 1 and 2 and the short story An Easy Fast. Details are in the episode description. 
In September, Chava and I are going to do a Q&A, so send your questions to StarTrekInTheJews at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to answer them. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>